I mean, my book is um, based on what took place in November 1984. So the events following um, Mrs. Gandhi, the Indian Prime Minister's assassination by her two Sikh bodyguards. Men, women, women and children being killed. Many women and, and, and girls were killed and, and there was mass rape on an unprecedented scale. Eyewitness testimony can pick out senior politicians that were present. People like, oh, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say the name, but you know, Jack. Have you received any backlash or anything um, around what you've written and collated? Hello and welcome to another episode of Smosa Chats. My guest today is Pav Singh. Uh, he's the author of 1984, India's Guilty Secret, which basically documents the events around the Punjabi or Sikh genocide um, at the time um, after the assassination of Indira Gandhi, who was India's sitting prime minister. Hello, Pav. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Preet? Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Um, so yeah, so, so so the book, do you have a copy of it with you? Uh, me being the a great host I am, I didn't actually have it to hand. I do, I do indeed. If there you wouldn't go. mind holding it up, yeah, that's perfect. So 1984, India's Guilty Secret. When did the book first launch? So it got published um, three years ago. Um, in fact, it was launched in the House of Lords. Um, and then it got um, launched in India. So I have a publisher in India, Rupa Publications, who, who, who launched it and published it in India as well. Um, and then the ebook came out last year, yeah. again, published um, by Kashi House, um, which is a UK publisher. Um, yeah. How did, um, so um, if we go back a little bit, so how did, what are your sort of experiences with the events around 1984? I guess some of our listeners may not actually know, but if you had to, sort of succinctly put down what 1984 was, how would you describe um, what happened and what we refer to when we refer to 1984? I mean, my book is um, based on what took place in November 1984. So the events following um, Mrs. Gandhi, the Indian Prime Minister's assassination by her two Sikh bodyguards and the events for the next three, four days um, and then subsequent um, two, two or three decades of cover-up as well. Um, but yeah, the, the event I, I describe as a, as a genocide, the uh, 1984 Sikh genocide, um, in my mind, were a series of uh, genocidal massacres, pogroms, mass rapes that took place. It's very different from the way it's um, framed officially um, by not only the um, the Indian government, the Congress party in particular, but also um, academics and Indian media still um, frame it as a, a communal communal riot or an anti-Sikh riot. Um, so I think that's one thing that um, gave me real good reasons to look at the events and try and challenge the narrative behind what took place because um, it's it's been very um, you know quite quite um, dangerous that it was framed as a riot because it minimised what took place, um, it kind of mischaracterised 
the events and the crimes that took place by just calling it a communal um, communal riot. Um, and here we are three decades on and no justice has been given to, to the victims. Um, and they've been fighting most of the time by themselves, um, widows and orphans. Um, you, you know, we have a widow's colony in Delhi. I mean, how, how shameful that is for um, you know, in the world's largest democracy to have a widow's colony right in the center of the country, of, of the capital. Um, and it's an event that, you know, many still don't like to talk about. Um, they brush it aside. Um, there's a real silence still in India. And if they do talk about it, again, it, it's about riots. Um, and it's, it's about also Khalistan and secessionists as well. There's a real kind of feeling still that Sikhs um, had it coming to them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for, for killing Mrs. Gandhi, two Sikhs killed Mrs. Gandhi. And for that act, the whole Sikh community were targeted and resulting in at least 8,000 Sikhs, men, women, women and children being killed. Many women and, and, and girls were killed and, and there was mass rape on a unprecedented scale mm. um so it's lots of uh you know the, the the kind of gigantic magnitude of the events have never been recognized both by the state or by the media um and there was a few mistakes that were made even by human rights groups early on by also framing it as a riot um so i think me living sort of in in the uk being brought up um you know, in the West with sort of the Holocaust and other genocides um, having a shadow on, on, on the events in the West, I could have that distance from the events and, and look at it, um, you know, compare it with other genocides, smaller genocides, um, not particularly the Holocaust, but in comparison, the genocide of uh, Srebrenica, where 8,000 Muslims, um, men and boys were killed. Um, so that's the sort of um, comparison I, I would make. What? Um, so if we were to take a step back, so of uh, um, Indira Gandhi gets assassinated in November of eighty four, and that was at a time a retaliation for the sort of storming, shelling, bombing, whatever you like to call it of Darbar Sahib or um, the Golden Temple. Um, what was the politics at play at the time? Um, ju just a brief overview of what that event actually was. So in June, in, in, in June. Yeah, so, so it's very important to go back to, to June and even, even before that. Um, now, India is a majority Hindu country. 80% are Hindus um, and there was a small clique of people around Mrs. Gandhi who early on in the eighties decided the only way they could get back, cling on to power, and we had elections coming up in 1984, was to play the communal card. Um, and they decided to target Sikhs, other Sikhs as a minority, as a, as a anti-national, um, secession, secessionist community um, and that small group of people um, you know sort of 
um, directed events really from the 80s onwards. They encouraged communalism in, in Punjab. Um, they had no interest in resolving the issue of Punjab. So there was a, a quite a, a large civil rights um, movement that was going on in Punjab, um, very similar to what's happening now with the farmers protests. So you had farmers issues regarding um, water rights, um, rights of power, um, and also, you know, demands to get a you know a capital city um, for Punjab, you know, then and even now it's shared with uh, the neighboring state of Haryana. Uh, many other issues were raised, uh, more rights to Punjab um, in terms of, um, you know, center state relations, um, a, a more federal, um, you know, um, solution that was sought. And it really goes back to 1947, even before that, before independence, where you know Sikhs were promised by the Congress Party that they would be able to enjoy a glow of freedom in their own state within within India. Um, so it was more of a federal state that India would be. Um, but then, after independence, um, Congress renegated on those promises, um, and it, it, you know India became more centralized less power was given to the individual states. And that sort of explains why 84 took place and also why we have the problems today where the center is built on, you know, um, bringing privatization into Punjab um, and so on. So um, it really, really goes back to the, those events before 1984. And it culminated with June, 1984 when, um, I think Sikhs in general were cornered. Um, you know, there was no negotiation um, settlement. Um, there were communal forces um, in Punjab that were encouraged. Um, you know, there were a concerted effort to um, cause problems between Sikhs and Hindus in Punjab. Um, there were, you know, um, attacks on innocent Hindus. You know, people, you know Hindus were taken off buses. And, and shots, and then on the other side there were, um, you know, torture employed by Punjab police on innocent Sikhs as well. So it really created this kind of um, a kind of a situation where the government said, "Well, actually, it's gone out of control. They are terrorists now, taken over the Golden Temple. We've got no choice but to go in um, and and take that." When there were so many options to. To have a peaceful solution, um, you know, if there was a handful of um, so-called terrorist militants who were in there, they could have been starved out. They could have been, um, you know, it could, could could have been taken out by snipers. Um, the press could have been in, invited, and, and and the militants could have come out. And it could be really peaceful. And in fact, in a few years after that, Black Thunder, that there was a peaceful, yeah. um, you know, solution to what took place in in 1987. So. All those efforts, um, you know, they, the, the Indian government decided not to do, and they sent in the cavalry, the battalions, the tanks, um, and you know, not only that, but on the busiest day in the Sikh calendar, you know, the martyrdom of Guru Arjan Dev Ji, where it was really busy, lots of farmers, lots of um, village people were in there, and the curfew was imposed, um, and you know, basically, it was a it was a trap. 
um, and then you know a bloodbath and many many thousands of innocent pilgrims were killed um, as, as well as many of the many of the militants and I think that caused so much anger in the community and not only that but it, there were there were kind of othered and um, framed as an anti-national as well the the white paper of the Indian government came out and you know in July basically saying that you know it was a secessionist movement that needs to be cut um, it, it really caused so much problems and within the general Hindu community there was that feeling you know swallowing the propaganda of the, the government that you know Sikhs needed to be cut down to size and um, they had it coming and they needed to be taught a lesson and um, November 1984 gave him that excuse um, you know the 31st of October assassination of Mrs Gandhi was 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 that time when um, the genocide um, was put in place, but the planning was put in place months before that. Yeah, uh, I, well, thank, thank, thanks for the summary and sort of setting the background to that. I've always, I've, I, I guess we kind of have a similar sort of background, as in both of us are born and raised here, um, two immigrant parents from Punjab. Um, I always whenever I sort of like look at the events in June first I always kind of think that there's so many factors that point to a different way of handling it. there could have been x number of different options to handle it um, but then the thing that always is the clincher for me is the sort of destruction and devastation that was that that, that was caused to you know the the sort of primal Sikh sort of authority and uh, and Gordora sort of which is a symbol of just like Sikhism really isn't it like the destruction of artifacts things like that I think that's often missed in sort of the mainstream reporting of what 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 took place but going back to your background so in 1984 you were here in in the UK yes I was here I mean I was born in in uh, Leeds in Yorkshire so I was brought up um, here, so I was a teenager in, in 1984. Um, so I think that's probably a good um, way to understand why I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, going back to the 31st of October when, um, you know, I was getting ready for school, I was in sixth form and hearing of, of the events, my family was then quite worried because I have family in Delhi um, my, my aunt and uncle um, on my mum's side and four cousins all live in, in Delhi. Um, I mean, they luckily survived. They were taken in by their Hindu neighbours. Um, like so many Sikhs were, were saved by their fellow um, Indians, um, Hindus and Muslims and Christians. Um, but um, it was through their, the family there and my visits to India, you know, particularly in the last two decades that I found the full extent of what took place. My uncle used to take me to the camps in Delhi and I, I, I talked to many of the, the, the victims' families and, and realized that actually the story um, had to be told, you know, properly through the eyes of the victims. And so I used the testimonies um, which were, you know, submitted to the first inquiry and the second inquiry the first inquiry many of the testimonies weren't released for years for decades actually um, and it was through that that I recognized and realized that actually the extent of the genocide um, particularly the the killings of um, 
of the women and young girls and, and then also the mass rape um, of, of women, um, which was hidden. And even, even now that officially those, those rapes have never been recognized um, and the killings of children never, never been recognized. So there's, it's, it's, it's why, you know, the, the book's called India's Guilty Secret. It is still a secret, the extent of a genocide, you know, in our lifetime that this genocide took place by a state. And it wasn't just a, a political party, although the Congress party was heavily involved. Um, it was the administration in terms of the cover up the judiciary, the police, um, the army was kept back for three days. Um, and also ordinary, ordinary Indians either took part in the killing um, or they were indifferent and just watched what took place. And it's, it's quite, you know, important, very, very similar to what happened in Germany afterwards. It's quite important that for India to now look at itself in, in the mirror to see, you know, what, what, how the hell did this happen? And to a new generation of Indians, to, to ask their mums and dads, their uncles and aunts, what did you do in 1984? Were you on the side of the Sikhs? Did you help Sikhs? Um, or did you join in with the killing? Or did you simply just watch? Um, so it's very important questions because only then that we can we can start talking about closure. You um, you mentioned there that the official story differs from research that you've conducted and other bodies have conducted as well. What sort of difference are we talking? So starting off with actually the framing of what took place as a riot, and it was the first thing that the new Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi um, uttered after the events where he um, we, he, he basically, um, you know, um, called what took place as communal riots um, that, um, you know, were a result, a spontaneous reaction to his mother's assassination. So no mention of it being organized, um, targeted, um, and, you know, no mention of the fact that his own henchmen were involved um, and even a family member of his were directly one of the orchestra orchestrators of of the massacres. No mention of the fact that he held the army back for three days until you know thousands had been killed. No mention of the fact that he promoted the very Congress leaders to high office and to cabinet post post genocide, um, and he refused to have an independent inquiry. And even to this day, we've never had an independent inquiry into into what took place um so yeah absolutely there's so much there that was hidden um the way the police operated um many cases they went into Sikh neighborhoods before the mobs arrived confiscated uh, their firearms licensed firearms and kabans and then allowed the mobs to come in and and kill people um, you know, in many areas, um, they they sought out Sikhs who were hiding and um, brought them out for the mobs to kill them. So, you know, there's lots of and a lot of a lot of this, a lot of the police have actually admitted to this. Um, there was a sting operation um, a few years ago, um, particularly of the policemen in East Delhi, who admitted that they they were part of this conspiracy to teach the Sikhs a lesson as part of the conspiracy of the ruling Congress party at the time. Um, so, and lots of other things that have never come out. The fact that 
a senior member um, of the Congress party and a member of the um, family, Gandhi family household, um, allegedly in Arun Nehru Empire, allegedly was the main orchestra of the, of the genocide. Um, you know, we've got testimony to say that a few months before um, he was part of an operation to collect the lists of Sikh homes and businesses from, from the Gurdwari of Delhi. And those lists were then handed over to the mobs. Um, and the strategy in his words was to get hold of Sikh youth, um, you know, put a tie around him, um, put kerosene in the tie and burn them, burn him alive to um, quote, um, you know, temper the, the anger of the Hindus. So, you know, all these kind of events can be um, traced back to a small clique of um, congressmen, senior congress um, leaders at the time who, who rebelled, you know, hell-belt on um, scapegoating Sikhs as a minority in order to, for, for the congress to capture the Hindu vote. Yeah, it's, um, I, I always struggle I always struggle hearing about some of the accounts and, and 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 things like that because there's graphic images that take place. There's video evidence. There's um, I think one of the most striking things is the eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony can pick out senior politicians that were present. People like oh, I'm not sure if we're allowed to say the name, but you know Jagdish Titler. Um, people like that who can be picked out of a lineup to say that he was there and you know to this day nothing's happened and they have been promoted to positions of even greater influence yeah absolutely i mean we are talking about very powerful politicians um you know politicians like jagdish title who would probably have ended up becoming prime ministers um and it even goes above him. I mean, the Home Minister, Narasimha Rao, who could have brought out the army, and even above him, you know, Rajiv Gandhi, who did nothing for three days um, when the violence took place, when plead, you know, politicians were pleading to him to bring out the army to save people, and he, he, he did nothing. Um, these are powerful politicians, and they've got away with mass murder. It's as simple as that. So they still have got away with that mass murder. Yeah, there was a, even just when, when we talk about sort of like groundswell and like the, the sort of mood of the public at the time, um, I boycott Bollywood, you know, one of its biggest stars in Amitabh Bachchan, you know, the Koon Kabadla Koon, like, you know, that speech was, it's chilling when you like hear about it. these people who are pillars of communities and like international communities because Bollywood's an international industry. I mean, it's chilling to capture the sort of mood at the time. Yeah, it was. It was very um, communal mood at the time, even before 1984. But particularly after the genocide, um, you know, there were there were cases of Sikhs being attacked. Um, you know, carried on being attacked after after November 1984. Um, Sikh kids at schools being you know bullied. Um, you know, jokes were made of them. And so forth. So it was it was a general sort of anti-Sikh sentiment that took place. Um, and shame, shamefully, the government then decided to have elections in December 1984, just a month after the genocide, to uh, you know um, to kind of try and capture that mood. 
um, to capture that Hindu vote. And they got the biggest mandate, the biggest majority of any ruling party. Um, and it was those Congress leaders who were involved in the massacres, people like HKL Bhagat in East Delhi, who got the largest majority. So in a, in a, in a way, the Indian public gave tacit support to what took place by giving the mandate to the very killers of, of Sikhs. So that's a sort of um, time and not only, and two or three decades after that, that's the kind of life Sikhs have to live under outside Punjab. In Punjab is a different story. In, in, in Punjab, that was a state, a police state. Um, and it remained a police state for a whole decade afterwards where you know, many um, human rights abuses took place, torture, rape of, of Sikhs, anyone who even you know, um, was accused of um, being part of the militant group. The whole family was, was um, taken out um, and disappeared. So that, you know, the story of Punjab from 1984 to nine, probably 1994 is a whole different story of, of disappeared mass cremations um, as, as well. It's, it's not just what took place in November. So um, what was, so, so, so you have the assassination of Indira Gandhi, you have the pogrom sort of go on um, throughout November. What was going on in Punjab at the time following that over the months and years? So following November 84, um, you know, people expected a backlash to happen in Punjab of Sikhs against Hindus, and it did not happen. It did not materialize um, at all. No Hindu was killed um, following November 84 um, in a concerted, you know, um, large, effort, large scale organized effort. Of course, there were militant groups in Punjab and some of them were communal and there were attacks on innocent Hindus and, you know, it, those acts should be condemned. There was the downing of the Air India flight as well in 1985, um, you know, an involvement of one Khalistani group um, and one of, one of them was, was brought to justice. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very important not to whitewash what took place on supposedly our side. I think, you know, any acts of terrorism, um, killings of innocents should be condemned by all. And I don't think any, any Sikh would condone um, attacks on innocents. I think it goes against what we, what we believe in. Um, 100% in yeah. Way. So it's very important to, to sort of look at that side of things as, as well. Um, I think it's, you know, important to actually talk maybe about the secessionist movement as well afterwards and um, whether that was the best option for, for Sikhs. Um, I mean, I, I, I still believe in an India that should be secular, pluralistic. I don't think that exists anymore. I think um, with, with the advent of, you know, the, the Hindu um, chauvinist and Hindu, Hindutva movement that's took place now, India is fast becoming a Hindu country. Um, but, you know, I still cling on the fact that we, it, it has an Indian secular constitution. And, um, you know, I, I will always fight for one India to be secular um, and for everyone. So, um, you know, I think Sikhs, you know, since independence and even before that, have fought for this India, you know, 
mm. um, through sacrifices, being part of the independence movement and, and so forth. So we should never be forced to sort of separate. Um, you mentioned you mentioned that um, you mentioned that the sort of India is becoming more um, sort of Hindu nationalist and stuff. Um, how is that the case? How is that happening now? So, although you know the the BJP came into power, you know, in majority, two thousand fourteen or so. It really started in 1984. I mean, I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of, lots of liberal um, members of Congress these days um, who who have said that, you know, the the movement of Hindutva started in 1984 with in, in 2014 with with the advent of the BJP. But I don't, I don't, um, you know, agree with that. I think it happened in 1984. I think the genie of Hindu nationalism was opened in 1984 with the Congress party. And the BJP just took that on. Um, the BJP is just blatant um, Hindu chauvinist. The Congress and the liberals kind of hide it. They're the pseudo liberalists. Um, and even to this day, they refuse to engage with 84 and their part or their Congress party's part in what took place because they kind of paint themselves as a secular forward-looking progressive. Um, but you know, is a is a is a kind of a amnesia when it comes to 1984 yeah. to them. But yeah, you know, once the BJP had gotten in, then obviously lots of textbooks just started changing. Um, you know, um, a real kind of move towards be what does India mean? You know, it's it's more to do with coming going back to the kind of Hindu mythological era. Um, and for them, every Indian is, is a Hindu and, and should subscribe to Hinduism. Mm. Um, and even, you know, even the, even the Sikh constitution is, is refers to Sikhs as, as Hindus. So that still hasn't been ratified as well and it hasn't, hasn't changed. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is quite um, challenging at the moment for minorities. Um, and also low caste Hindus as well. You know, it's, 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 it's a government that's made up of high caste Hindus, businessmen and the yeah. corporates. And that's where, where we've ended up completely different from where I think those who fought for Indian independence um, fought for. They didn't fight for, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, kind of a mirror image of Pakistan, you know, yeah. where on, on Pakistan side, you've got the rise of Islamism um, and you know the, the official religion of the state is Islam, and then on the India side, that's where it's going. Um, and it's a real shame because many of us, you know, believe in the idea of India as a secular, pluralistic country. And it's a real shame that it's it's going away from that. Yeah, I, I almost feel like divisions are just sort of like when we talk about politics in general. I almost feel like divisions are part and parcel of strategy almost you know the more divided you get the more you can secure like the more you can divide groups and societies into like little communities the sort of more secure your power bases are and i think the thing that's always missed from what happened in 1984 is the sort of politics that were at play like even though the even though the people committing these atrocities were you know either soldiers doing carrying out orders or you know actual smaller sort of like community clusters 
everybody was essentially played on like a bigger platform, which was securing power, securing power and securing a popular base. Um, and we we are seeing that now. So you sort of see the um, the Kassan Morsha that's going on. So the protest, the farmers protest at the moment. But then you also can like link what happened in Punjab and also in Delhi at the time to other communities. So like, for example, the Muslims in Gujarat and even the sort of Tamils down, down in the south. Um, so that's always been something that I think is like key. I don't think it's just ever been like a Sikh issue. I think it's always been a minority issue in, in India. Yeah, absolutely. And also interstate relationships as well. So, you know, once independence had happened, there was a real um, sort of urge of the state, the center to introduce Hindi in the whole of India. And many of the states, including Punjab, but also the states in South India who rebelled against the imposition of Hindi um, so there was there was kind of regional movements for their own language, um, and that happened in Punjab as well. Um, movements to have their own state rights as well. So it's not just a Punjab issue, and you can see that now with the Kassans. Kassans are everywhere in, in mm. India. Um, but I think it, I think in particular in the Punjab state situation, Punjab was the last state to be. To be recognised as a as a state, and even then it was carved up um, with Haryana and Himachal being created after out out, out of a larger Punjab um, to create that Punjab Suba. But even that Punjab Suba wasn't, you know, many of the areas Punjabi speaking were left out, um, and then it was decided to just give them um, a shared capital as well. Mm. And then they started, um, you know, taking the rights, the water rights away from them, which again impacted farmers. We've we, so so I think we've kind of touched on this point. But in your view, obviously, somebody who's got extensive knowledge about what's going on and you've covered sort of the history of it, what's the reasoning behind this? Because technically, even even if they like with 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 Punjab, let's say, even if it's a sort of separate and like a separate entity at the end of the day they are technically indian citizens so what's the motives behind sort of stripping away rights and land and things things like that i think you've nailed it by saying divide and rule they follow the policy of the british so the british were really good at dividing and ruling dividing communities and ruling and the indian ruling class have taken that um, to its end <laughs> by introducing genocide in order to divide communities it's the way the powerful do i mean the you know the the indian ruling class is made up of industrialists and capitalists they're not made up of ordinary people whether they're you know working on the land or working in factories um they're a you know a pseudo capitalist country and will fight to the end to maintain that um sort of an equal type of um, government and society where the rich get richer and the poor get po poorer, the rich and the powerful can get away with murder. Um, you know, they can use bribery, they use their contacts to evade justice. And that's the sort of society that we're, we're in at the moment. You know, we've got those societies everywhere in the world as well. 
um, some quite um, extreme, where you look at you know some of the totalitarian countries like North Korea, um, Iran, and so forth. But you also have dem democracies now going towards that, and have been the last few years. Probably you, the USA is probably a prime example of what we've been going through the last few years with with Trump. Um, again, the the policy of divide and rule. So you know. With, with his base, it has divided and introduced lots of toxicity in, in politics and in society in, 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 in America. So um, it's not something that's unique to India. It's, it's happened everywhere, really. Um, but the, you know, the, the good thing is that, you know, the people are many, they are the few, and it's when the people rise and start fighting for their rights that you can change things mm -hmm. for the better. And I think that's really heartening that that movement has started with the Kisans, the farmers. Um, so I'm hoping that movement, you know, is then joined by other groups, and you know, they start challenging what kind of India it's become and what they should be, what kind of India they want their children to, 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 to live in. Do you, do you sort of have any fears or anything about what's going on here at the moment? So on Twitter, I think it was a former Supreme Court justice recently sort of tweeted out. I mean, I think he left very room for interpretation, but essentially what he, I think he was sort of alluding to was that a massacre on the scale of like Julianwala uh, Bagh under the British was necessary or forthcoming uh do you have any sort of reservations or like worries that this movement could say could see the same form of suppression that we saw in the 80s and 90s yeah it could do absolutely um you can see the signs of that the way the government is um painting this the the, the movement the farmers movement as a secessionist uh, you know terrorist you know, they started off with calling them Khalistani and then they changed it to terrorists and, 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 and so forth and anti-national. So you can see how, how they're framing it. I don't think it's working at the moment because there was so much support for the farmers throughout India by, by so many people, of all faiths. Um, you know, it's probably, um, you know, a good thing in terms of social media. We didn't have social media in 1984. Now we do. So we'd see the events live now um and everything is shared so that's probably a good thing you know it's very difficult for the state to hide things now where they did in 1984 you know they the other thing about 84 is that they had control of the media the state media so the um the state tv Dudashan was owned by the state and also um the radio as well um so you know, we're not in that situation now, um, but then they will clamp on the media. You know, this is not that difficult for them to, um, as China does from time to time, close down social media and control, um, you know, censor media, which they've done in 84. Again, they were censoring newspapers. Very few newspapers talked about the genocide. Um, in fact, there's only one who, who talked about massacres, um, the, um, the Indian Express, but even they, um, didn't talk about the rapes. They 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 they, they refused to um, even mention mention that. Um, but the whole of the rest of the media told the Indian government line that this was just a, a, a you know a mineral 
um, loss of life that took place. And they were just talking about hundreds of people who were killed. Um, yeah, we know now there were, there were, there were thousands, and they, not all, only in Delhi, but throughout Northern India. So many of the, the cities of Northern India, villages, um, towns, and also, you know, in between towns on the, on the buses and trains, they were attacked as well in an organized way. Um, mm. It wasn't spontaneous, many of those areas. There were concertive um, operations that took place, staying, uh, train stoppages, um, unauthorized, you know, going into the 50 or 60 stoppages where mobs can go in. So a real control of what took place. And I think that can still happen. Um, but again, I think it's up to the people to, to make sure that, um, you know, that everything's shared and everything's transparent and, you know, people in the wider world yeah. um, knows what, what's taking place on, on the ground. Yeah, I, also, I, I, I sort of hark back to sort of the early days of the farmers' protests at the moment where almost within days it kind of went viral as soon as it looked like, you know, the, the sort of police were being heavy-handed and, you know, roadblocks were being water cannons there was that iconic now iconic image of the sort of bob by the elderly gentleman, you know, being hit with a stick. And I think I was, I was very fearful in, in that point had it, the movement not gone as viral as it did, you know, celebrities tweeting about it, that kind of stuff. Had it not gone viral at that point, then I think we would be looking at a very different picture here at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But there's also, there's a, the other I iconic scene of the guy who got on top of um, one of the water cannons yeah. and shut it down um, right in front of the police. And that was really good because that actually showed, although the state will try and attack you with batons, you know, the reaction is people's power. You know, there is a power amongst the many who can change things. And I think that's really important to say there is, you know, that's where the, our optimism, you know, come from, mm. you know, we can change things if we all unite um, together. So I think there's, there's an optimism there as well. Yeah. Um, so going back to sort of Punjab after the sort of, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by when it comes to this movement is what ended up happening in Punjab in the sort of 80s and 90s. Now, we touched on it sort of earlier in, 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 in the conversation, but what specific policies and tactics did the sort of central and also local government start using? So I think after what took place in November, I mean, there was no secret in Punjab what took place. I mean, many of tens of thousands of Sikhs in, in Delhi and northern India had to escape and they escaped to Punjab and also to the West. And so those stories were spread um, between families of what took place, the killings and rapes. And there was a real anger in Punjab of, of what, what took place. And that then encouraged the secessionist movement, a militant movement um, for Khalistan. Um, so I think the Indian state got really worried about that because there was a real um, feeling and also if you look at the, the stats I mean you know um, I think it was 1986 there was elections in Punjab 86 87 and the majority of the candidates supported Khalistan 
um, you know, there was a, a general popular feeling in Punjab that, you know, enough was enough. Um, you know, what took place in 84, you couldn't just um, let it go and forget about it. So there was a real popular feeling that change needs to be made. I think the Indian state basically um, in reaction to that came in really hard against the movement. Um, and that's why you got so many people disappeared, so many um, um, killings and rapes, so forth. And um, just many of the there. Punjab police was involved as well. Yeah. So yeah, just to interrupt there. So obviously you mentioned the phrase sort of disappeared. What does that look like on the ground? What what is that in actuality during that so, time? So you know, people will be taken from their house in the middle of the night, taken to a police station and executed um, and then their body would be thrown maybe into the canal um, and then the next day there'll be a media story leaked by the police to say there was an encounter so-called encounter um, a shootout um, between themselves and the militant the militant got killed where in actual fact it was a um, it was a it was an execution so yeah um, so many stories well documented by human rights groups on the ground um, of many, many families where their loved ones were killed in that way. Yeah, I, I think the estimates are always the sort of thing that bring that into reality for me. I mean, you see estimates that go close to somewhere like 250,000 people were, obviously there's no official figure for it because they weren't counted for, um, but like 250,000 people being disappeared. Like if you think about just the sort of astronomical scale of that. I think it's, it is it's chilling, isn't it? Now, th this was a question I was going to save to the end, right? But I'm going to ask it now because I think we've kind of led onto it quite well. But obviously there's the story of Jaswant Singh Cholera who over for, was a, a human rights activist over from um, Canada, uh, created a report started actually carrying out analysis um, of what was going on and found these sort of mass cremation sites and had proof and evidence of this. In, I think it was 92, was it? I, th I think it was 92. He takes a trip back to Punjab and obviously gets picked up. Eyewitness accounts say that he got picked up by the police and disappeared. Now, you, uh, now obviously the work's not quite compatible, but I mean, obviously you're drawing quite a lot of media attention with your book, with with your actual analysis and things like that, onto the topic of a genocide and the roles played by certain powerful key individuals. Do you ever like sort of think or worry? Does your mind ever wander onto like I? Do you face any danger? Say, if you were to go back to India, would you kind of be looking over your shoulder a little bit? I don't think so. I think the situation has changed in India. Um, I mean, I. I I probably would have done a decade ago. Um, and particularly under if the Congress party was in power, I don't think my book would have been published in India. Um, no way, it definitely would have been banned. Um, so I think, you know, three decades on from the genocide, many ordinary people in India, are very supportive of the, the, the cause of justice, you know, of all faiths. Um, so I think the situation is, is different in that sense. You know, there have been stories, and obviously there's there's a famous story of one of our um, Scottish um, 
um, guys who, who, who's been taken into custody and is still in prison, hasn't been brought to justice um, and so forth. There are, there are isolated cases, but I think, I think generally this story of the genocide of November 84, many people do know about it and they do want to fight for that. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's slightly different. So see my job is to actually engage with people ordinary Indians to actually look at this and, 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 and start asking questions, um, you know, particularly those who, uh, particularly Hindus who've, who've sort of maybe don't know much about what happened. I mean, I had a talk recently with, with um, a Hindu academic and he was saying, my generation don't know anything about what took place. We, we're not taught this in schools and even the media don't frame it the way you framed it. And he was shocked to learn these testimonies that I've collated. So I think there's, you know, I think a real work, a lot of work needs to be done still about engaging with people um, on this topic. And I think through that, I think we can, we can then start, you know, getting the powers to be look at this again. Mm. Um, and that's why at the end I do call for uh, an independent truth and reconciliation commission um, to to really look at the events, call out people, call out the Congress Party to recognise what took place on their watch, mm. and also you know bring in help to the victims, um, trauma specialists for the people who were traumatised by the events, rape counsellors. So all these things um, I'm, I'm pushing for, but an, an independent inquiry, uh, truth and recognition on, on par with what's happened in South Africa is, is, is required now, but it needs to be led by the victims this time around, not by the government. Um, and I think that's the only way we can start the process of closure. You, you, you sort of speak about testimonies there. What kind I guess this is a two-part testimony. For, uh, uh, question. Firstly, what were the testimonies like? What kind of stories did you hear when you were collating the sort of data? And secondly, what was that like for you? Um, obviously, somebody with a shared heritage with the people who you know had experienced this. What was that like personally for you? Well, the testimonies were pretty horrific. Um, some of the testimonies in the first inquiry that were then hidden for years talked in particular not not just the way the Congress and leaders incited mobs, but many of the testimonies talked about ordinary neighbors who turned upon them. So there was many, you know, some localities, Hindus saved Sikhs, but other localities, Hindus turned upon their Sikh neighbors. So there was a lot of um, stories that I was quite shocked with. Um, it seems as if a lot of ordinary neighbors took it upon themselves to cut Sikhs down to size, take their homes, take their land um, and their possessions. Um, so I was quite shocked with that. Um, but the kind of gruesome, you know, stories that I've had to sort of talk about in the book were horrific. And um, yeah, it kind of, it did, um, you know, it, it was it's quite difficult to read at the time and the way I dealt with it is um, as I explained at the beginning I, I do lots of running I'm a, I do triathlons and I live in the countryside so I kind of 
you know, I would, you know, do a run in the day and get away from these stories and sort of calm my mind, my mental mental state. I think if I didn't do that, I it would have really, really eaten me up. So that was the only way I could sort of um, write about these things. Um, and, you know, the book was it, 10 years in the making, but it took a couple of years to actually write it, um, write it down. But um, yeah, it, it sort of, it was difficult, but I could try and manage it. Um, and now that I've got it published and out there, it's out there, it belongs to the readers, not me. Mm. Um, so it's a real weight off my shoulder now. With um, one thing that you go on to touch uh, in the in the book, um, India's Guilty Secret, um, was the role that sort of foreign foreign parties played in the sort of post um, the post event, if you like, um, agencies like Britain, places like that, because obviously at the, that time the sort of diaspora community was sizable. So you know that you did have Punjabis and especially Sikhs in the US, UK, Canada and places like that. But what role did sort of foreign powers play at the time? Yeah, so in particular Britain, because obviously Britain had a long-standing relationship with India being the former colonial power, um, very close relationship with, with India. In particular, they, the, Indian, the, the, the British government had eyes on the Indian market, the growing new Indian market and you know, wanted to make deals with um, you know, Indian goods, um, wanted to sell arms to India. You know, the famous Westland helicopter deals was taking place in the 80s as well. So on the one hand, they had to deal with India and be very, be very cozy to India and Indian industrialists. But on the other hand, they had um, you know, Sikh minorities and the diaspora who they saw as a nuisance, really, because you know, here these Sikhs talking about 84 and genocide, um, and they really didn't like that. So they took the side of India, very indifferent to sort of the, the claims of India, uh, of, of Sikhs at the time. Um, I think it, it did cause a lot of problems, I think, even, even to this day, we don't have an Indian, uh, a British, um, you know, leading government who's condemned what took place in November 1984. Even our opposition leader has never actually condemned what took place in 84 um, and called out that genocide. Um, you know, both Keir Starmer and Boris John Johnson have not condemned the genocide of November 1984. And that's another thing that I'll be calling for uh, later on this year is, is they should, as they've done with other smaller genocides like Srebrenica genocide, um, where they've recognized um, that mass, mass crime, they should also do that with November 1984. Did, so um, after having written the book, and obviously it's probably one of the most popular uh, books on the actual subject of the 84 gen genocide, have you, and obviously you've got an online presence and things like that as well, have you received any backlash or anything um, around what you've written and collated? No, I haven't actually. And it's, you know, I, it's been warmly received in India. I mean, I've got many messages from particularly non-Sikhs who just didn't realise what took place and the extent. And they say that it's opened their eyes 
I'm quite heartened with that because that was my main aim really to sort of um, open people's uh, you know eyes and start asking them to ask questions about what took place and look at the events so so my objective was to to do that and get this story out to as many people as possible not only in India but to to the west as well and that's one of the reasons why I have two publishers so one in the west Kashi House so you know it's it's been widely read in the west Canada America and here in Britain Australia but also in India as well where I have Rupa um, one of the top um, publishers in India who you've been brilliant you know very few publishers in India wanted to touch this and they they one of the ones who said no we want it we want this we know that this is a very important work and needs to be needs to be come out I think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been a backlash because you know that you can't argue against something that's very um, evidence-based based on testimonies um, from the very families that were involved it's very mm. hard to anyone to argue against that um i think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been a backlash right yeah that that, that kind of makes sense and um i think that i i think what you just said there about the sort of evidence-based sort of empirical approach i think that's kind of what i think separated the book out from from a lot of other books and pieces of text on the topic with regards to, and you touched on this earlier, but with regards to reconciliation and how do you sort of move on, move forwards towards something that like kind of looks not a rosy future, but you know, like a sort of future where healing and reconciliation can take place. What steps need to be sort of carried out both in India and also sort of with the diaspora? I think in terms of India, you know, I'm calling for the Indian government to allow for an independent truth and reconciliation commission to take place now that you know we've we've had it in south africa we've had it in many countries in south america and also in bosnia um, and rwanda so that i think indian government can do that they can allow that to happen i think once that's done um you know we, we can have the victims um organizations their lawyers to be involved to actually direct that so really to scope that, what kind of inquiry that 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 would mean. So obviously, on the justice side, yes, we need the truth out so we can we can bring justice um, and call people to account. It will also allow a lot of people um, who know the truth. So, for example, the mechanism of the genocide. So, who ordered the kerosene? Who ordered the the weaponry? The phosphorus white powder that you know burnt people to the bone. You know that these things, chemicals, are not to readily available they was an organized way they were procured and given to mobs who you know allowed the stoppages of the trains to happen who's, who who told the police not to do anything or be actively involved in the pogroms who cover up the, the the whole genocide for three decades you know the judiciary and allowed those involved to evade justice there's a lot of people out there who know the truth in the administration bureaucracy we would this would allow them to actually hopefully come out and, and tell us the truth um and maybe even offer some am amnesty to those people who may not have been involved in the killings but know who were involved who you know who organized these things so that's one way to do to do that and also allows the victims to actually ask for help so a lot of the communities in you know the widows communities 
need help, they need empowerment, they need proper jobs, they need proper education for their kids and their grandchildren as well. So there's a lot that could be done in terms of that. And I've also talked about help in terms of, you know, mental help and, and trauma help as well. So I think this is a process that will start with just a state to recognise what had been done, mm. recognise it as a genocide. And then from then onwards, the, the victims can lead that, um, you know, healing and, and eventual closure. Um, but it, it has to start now because this is an open wound, not just for Sikhs, but also for India as a secular state. It's a real kind of um, stain on India um, that really we need to resolve. And all Indians and all people in the diaspora need to, need to help in this process and not brush it aside. It's, it's gone for far too long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that, that, that's well put. I guess my final question to you... Um, would kind of be a more conceptual question, I guess, in that can India still class itself as a democracy, uh, given what we obviously we, we, we spoke about, sort of what happened with Juggy, um, a British, UK, Scot Scottish citizen being held without trial, without evidence, without due process, really, for nearly close to 1,200 days. Um, what's, like, what what needs to take place for India to sort of rectify that and sort of, as you sort of put it, sort of to expose the guilty secret and get rid of it? Why has that not taken place? And can it still call itself a democracy, I guess? Yeah, I think it's problematic to call it a democracy where, you know, the, the state, the police, um, the law enforces, you know, are law upon themselves. Um, you know, they use torture on a daily basis. Um, uh, and you know m minority rights always attacked um you know the the, the the position of women as well in cases of rape as well it's ongoing so there's lots of problems india needs to address i think it's about reckon recognizing you know these crimes and it may not happen and probably won't happen in this administration but i'm looking at future administrations mm. a progressive in administration um, you know, we're in the West, we're used to, you know, supposedly progressive governments. Um, you look at ourselves, but also Canada. Um, and I'm hoping the new Ad Biden administration is coming in, in America, where you see it as more progressive, more transparent, more open. That's the sort of government that we, I wish a future Indian government would be, where it actually holds up their arms and say, look, we made a gigantic mistake in terms of 1984 and subsequent um, massacres that took place mm. and we need to change and I think that the way the government will change is by pressure from below and that's the only way people in power will change um, so again going back to Kisan movement at the moment that's a really good encouraging way the government of India will take stock but I'm looking at future administration I can't see it happening in the near future yeah well um thank you so much for coming on to the, the the podcast pav uh really enjoyed our chat um the book i really encourage any of our listeners to go get it i, I mean it's really good uh, probably the foremost book i think on the uh, on the matter which was 1984 india's guilty secret uh pav your social medias as well um what are those 
I think you're quite active on Twitter. Yeah, it's mainly Twitter actually. So um, yeah, just you can find me on Twitter. Pav Singh. <laughs> At Pav Singh. Pav Singh. Yeah. Yeah, um, 1984, India's guilty secret. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you.